All right. Well, hello, everyone. Um, you know, I, I find it uh, interesting. I was uh, two years old when Pastor Terry and Cheryl got married. And <laughs> just thought I'd like to share that important fact. Uh, it's an interesting fact. But you know, we, we're so excited that, uh, that they get to spend some time away to be able to celebrate their marriage, to be able to uh, be refreshed, to be able to have time together. They're such a blessing to our community. And it is such a privilege to be able to give them the opportunity to have this time together and, and to be able to celebrate not only the gift they are to each other, obviously, but also in, in a way we get to enjoy the fact that they, they, they have been a gift to us. And, uh, and so it's a privilege to be able to do that. And my name is Louis Menjavar. I'm the Young Adults and Associate Teaching Pastor here. And um, I'm pretty excited to continue our series, of Wisdom for Living, as we walk through this summer. And as we step into this weekend, I would just like us to consider this idea that there will be times in our lives where God will present us with a moment of truth that is meant to illuminate somewhat of a blind spot of how we see ourselves, how we may see those around us, or perhaps a situation we may be walking through, and how we respond in those moments, in those moments that God may reveal something that is true. How we respond will determine whether or not we are able to glean wisdom for living. I'd like to suggest there's actually a lot of wisdom in being able to embrace these moments. And I'm excited to share this, uh, this afternoon with everyone, but I'd like to pray over his word, over this time together, ask for his blessing as we step into this together. Um, if you wouldn't mind joining me, I'll go ahead and pray. God, thank you. Thank you, first of all, for, for the gift of Pastor and his wife and everything they mean to our community. We pray that you would bless them, that you refresh them, give them a sense of your pleasure and joy, God. And we also thank you for this opportunity we've been given right now as we've made an effort to move into your house and place, us, place ourselves in a, in a place where we can pause and we could, in some way, shape, or form, still our thoughts to be able to provide room for you to speak to us. And so as we take a look at your word and as we consider this idea that you may want to present us with moments of truth for our wisdom, for our benefit, pray that you would help us as best as we can Remain open to what you may want to say. And at the time, at the end of our time here together, I pray that we would sense not only words that of describing an event happened so long ago, but that we may leave knowing that you have a word for us personally. I pray that you would give us wisdom for living, God. We ask for your blessing, and uh, we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See, there, there will be times in our lives where God will present us with a moment of truth. <coughs> meant to highlight, illuminate a blind spot of how we may see ourselves, maybe those around us, or a situation we may be walking through. And how we respond in those moments, well, it makes all the difference as to whether or not we will gain wisdom for living. And just so we're clear, this, this idea of a moment of truth, I, I like to think of it as a moment in which what is real, what is true, perhaps what we may have once denied or pretended wasn't there, is no longer, that's no longer an option. It is, it is, if you could think of it this way, it is now unavoidable. And it is right there, dead, right there, front and center. And we must choose in those moments, and perhaps we could no longer, we have pled ignorance, or maybe we actually were ignorant, and all of a sudden, these moments confront us. They, they provide us with an opportunity to see things as they truly are, and in those moments, we have a choice to make. So whether or not we will embrace it, glean wisdom, or if we will let it pass by, 
And this idea, it actually strikes really close to home for me. Because it reminds me of the most significant moment of truth in my own life that honestly, I can tell you, redirected my life 180 degrees. It was 16 years ago that I was entering my fourth year of high school, and I remember every year this would happen, but this, this was a little bit different. See, my school counselor, her name was Mrs. Zawardo, and she was the nicest adult on campus. She always smiled. Her, her, her husband was the psychology professor, and he was the coolest professor on campus. And, and so they were just great, and I just remember enjoying both of them, and she always was encouraging, smiling, gave me, you know, just a word to lighten my day up, and every year she would call me into her office and have kind of a sit-down with me to talk about how things were going. And I remember this fourth year, this beginning of the fourth, uh, the first semester of this fourth year, her sitting me down, I still remember this yellow couch in her, in her office, and it was a rather small office, and her looking at me with a little bit of, of compassion, a little bit of soberness, and her starting to explain to me that, unfortunately, because of how I have walked through the previous three years, I will not be able to graduate high school. And she wasn't the only person who was trying to get my attention to this. Actually, my parents had been trying to get my attention throughout the years as well, but I had always lied, pretended, denied, hid, joked about it, made light of it, and never really paid attention until this moment when I was sitting there. And maybe she was assuming that this was going to go like the other moments that she had tried to give me something of an alert, something of a wake-up call. And she decided to reinforce what she was saying with a piece of paper, and she opened up her file. She unfolded a piece of paper, not too different from this. It had her handwriting on it, and she went ahead and put it on her desk and pushed it in front of me and had me look at it, and in front of me was sitting my, my high school transcript, and I remember just looking at it. And it showed all the grades throughout the semesters I had been there. At that point, it was about three years embarking on my, my you know, the next half, the first half of my fourth year, and had all the grades, all the grades that I'd rather not walk through each semester with you. <laughs> but I think it's important. So I figured I'd go ahead and make it a little bit more succinct. See, in my three and a half years there, I was able to earn two A's. One was in Spanish, a class I never took. I tested it, and I passed with an A. <laughs> the other one was in PE. And then I got three Bs in my three and a half years. I got one in English, one in art, and one in PE. <laughs> I had seven Cs in my three and a half years. I had eight Ds. And I had 23 Fs. I know. And as you sit there and wonder why, why I am on this platform sharing, why you're hearing from me this weekend, Yes. I can tell you that this was my moment of truth 16 years ago. But oh, how, what an impact this made. And it, what it did is it, it put front and center my need to make some major adjustments, some major changes. And because that has happened, I can say 16 years later that this is no longer what is real and true. Something happened from there to now. And as I'm sitting here, and as I'm sitting in that office as a 16-year-old, and I'm letting this sink in, and my world is beginning to crater in front of me, I, I'm looking at this paper, and I remember just seeing the academic GPA was 0 .763. How, how, how do you do that? 
My, my class rank, this is something that I discovered, I've shared with certain high school students, somewhat as a parable, perhaps, for, for different people. But I remember my class rank was, um, I, I just noticed this recently, it was 443 in my class, which with not knowing the size of my class, we wouldn't know where that would land me. But my class size was 379 students, which <laughs> just doesn't add up. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm enough, good enough at math to know that there are somehow 64 imaginary students that had they attended this school, they still <laughs> would have scored higher than my rank. That's serious, right? Intense. And, and I remember sitting there acknowledging this and reading it and sitting with it and realizing I can't joke, I can't hide, I can't lie, I can't pretend, I can't deny this anymore. This is happening. And as the room starts to make me feel extremely claustrophobic and the walls are closing in on me and my life before my eyes is just undoing itself. I almost could sense my counselor seeing this, and she decided to say two things that have stuck with me throughout the years. In fact, I still love holding on to this because I remember these two words, these two phrases. One, she said, listen, Lewis, this is true, this is real, but this doesn't have to be the end of your academic life. This, this doesn't have to be the final note of your academic history. There is a way forward for you academically. It will require tremendous hard work. And it is a long, steep road. But if you want it, I can help you help figure this out. Send you on a new path. This doesn't have to be the end. And then she said, and Lewis, I, I really want you to understand this, that I hope for me, my hope for you, is that you won't allow this moment of truth to be wasted that you will learn everything you're supposed to learn from these, this track record you've assembled. And that you, you squeeze out of it everything you're supposed to learn from this. This doesn't need to be the end. And I hope you learn what you're supposed to learn. There's a way forward. And, and I am just so grateful to be able to tell you that that moment of truth, being able, being forced to embrace it, actually ended up, her words ended up being true. Her words ended up being accurate. Because what happened is that she ended up enrolling me in a, in a, a manner which being able to study for a test that would able to, me to go to a junior college. And I ended up moving forward in my academic life. And even now, as I have just completed my first year of graduate school, I pull this paper out and I think to myself, God was at work in that office. Not without even realizing something was happening that would completely alter the track of my life doesn't need to be the end. There is a way forward. And there is wisdom to be gained when we embrace our moments of truth. There is wisdom to be gained. And we, we, we may have moments in our lives where perhaps we're presented with certain things that we would rather avoid, we'd rather pretend, we'd rather make light of. And yet, all the while, God may be trying to get our attention to alert us to something, to teach us, to give us wisdom for living.
because this counselor, she, I don't think, was speaking from a Christian perspective. But over the years, what I have discovered, as after that moment, I ended up becoming a little bit more open to coming to church and becoming more open to figuring out what I needed to address. And over the years, as I've read the scriptures, what I've discovered is that what she was trying to say to me is something that God has been trying to, if you could hear this, say it with a megaphone, that he longs for us to step into the light of what he might want to present us with. And we may gain wisdom. And there is a way forward, but it must begin with whether or not we embrace those moments. In fact, a proverb says something like this. In Proverbs 24, 16, we're told that the righteous fall seven times. They fall seven times, which is an idiom to say 70 times. However many times a righteous person, what does that mean? person who is seeking to live a life that is right with God. That a life that is seeking to live right with God is, it may fall, but can we see it? Can we hear it? The resilience, it rises again. That when we embrace these moments, we rise again. And God wants to teach us how to do that, how to move forward, how to become the person who lives with him in such a way that, yes, we may fall. Oh, how we may fall. But he gives us the ability to glean wisdom, to rise again. And I wonder how many of us, God may be trying to impress something of an opportunity. And how we respond, it, it really makes the difference. This, this account that we're going to step into, it, it's one of my favorite accounts. It's a, of a historic figure, probably one of the most well-known kings of ancient time, King David, and definitely in Israel's history. And it's an account of of him being presented with an opportunity to embrace his moment of truth. And if you open up your handout, we, we would look at 2 Samuel 12, and I think it accurately represents how tender and how loving God is with us in bringing us to these moments of truth. But before we step into this account, we need to know a couple of things, just for context. Because a year before this happened, this great king who is still to this day revered and respected, he actually hit a rather low point in his life where he made very big mistakes. A year before, he actually ended up crossing in line with a woman named Bathsheba. And he ended up committing adultery. He ended up crossing the line sexually. And what happened is in this event, he ended up discovering that she was pregnant. And so he made his first mistake, which was to cross that line with her. But once he discovered that she was pregnant, he ended up making his second mistake. He sought to cover it up, to hide it. And the man that was married to Bathsheba was a man in his own army of whom he was a king. And the man's name was Uriah. And so he called Uriah, who was at, in battle, fighting his battle. He called him home. Seeking to cover it up, he sought to send Uriah home to enjoy the comforts of his home and the intimacy of his wife so that when the child would come to term, Uriah and Bathsheba could claim the child as their own. No one else outside of King David and Bathsheba being none the wiser. Except Uriah was more noble. And out of solidarity with his men in the field, he decided he would not enjoy the comfort of his home, the embrace of his wife. And he refused to do that which foiled King David's plan. And it led to him in his desperateness to cover this up, to make the third rather extreme mistake. 
He sent Uriah back to the front lines with a note to his general. And the note to the general asked the general to place Uriah on the front lines of battle and to get close to the enemy in this battle. And when the enemy drew near, he asked the general to pull back everybody except Uriah, exposing him to the enemy, which ended up killing him. David, after committing adultery, seeking to cover it up, ended up going a little further, a lot further, and committing murder. And after this happened, after a period of mourning, he ended up bringing Bathsheba into his house, marrying her, and behaving as if everything was coincidental, cheating the consequences of what he had just done. And beyond that, for 12 months, he behaved as if nothing had happened, lying and hiding and pretending as if everything was okay. It was a rather serious, extreme line of actions. And 12 months later, this incident occurred. One that God so graciously, lovingly made sure would happen. We read in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David this story. The Lord sent this man, Nathan, who was a trusted confidant of David, God's spokesman, to tell this story. There, there were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. He sets up this scenario, a scenario which, by the way, if we're familiar a little bit with King David, we would know that King David was actually a young man who was raised within a family of modest means who took care of his father's sheep who would immediately find solidarity with a poor man in the story, who cared about the lamb, who would understand what it would be like to care for a lamb. Because this young man, when he was a young man, he risked his life to defend his father's sheep. He made sure he was a good shepherd. And then on the contrast, on the other side, was a rich, wealthy man. There's a scenario, he says, which, by the way, he doesn't realize is a fictitious one. Nathan had not said as much. And so in his mind, this is all true. And Nathan goes ahead and moves in. He says, one day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it. And he prepared it for his guest. This beloved sheep of the poor man was taken from his grip and was slaughtered for somebody else's hunger. And in this event, well, if we could appreciate this, Nathan masterfully plays the chords that David would resonate with in his own heart. Such injustice, such lack of mercy, such lack of compassion, such abuse of power. And stepping right into the place that perhaps God and Nathan needed David to be, we see transparent anger and desire to rectify this decision. And we're told in verse 5 that David responds. And David, in his fury, says, As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. Which, by the way, in that day and age, a king was absolute in his power, unquestioned. His word was law. And most of the times, he himself was held above the law. So the very moment that King David uttered these words, he knew what he was doing. He was sentencing this man to death. 
And he moves on. He says, not only that, he must repay. Verse 6, he must repay four, four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole. Why? Because he had no pity. There was no compassion in his heart. He abused his power, his position. He abused his wealth. And that is unacceptable to me. And stepping into this place of absolute solidarity with the poor man, what we must understand is that in this moment, Nathan had a decision to make. Because what he was about to do was he was going to take his own life into his own hands, step into that place with King David, and illuminate something of a blind spot he had been living with for, over, for nearly 12 months. And by doing that, he was putting his own head in danger. There's no question. Though God had sent him, he needed extraordinary courage to be able to help David receive his king, receive this moment of truth. I'm convinced it is not only love for God, but love for David. That Nathan ended up uttering these resounding words. Having him exactly where he needs him. Nathan, in verse 7, says to David, You are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I appointed you, I anointed you king of Israel, and saved you from the power of Saul. When you were oppressed, I took you from there and put you into this place. But you are the wealthy man in this story. You're that man. And oh, how the silence, the deafening silence of those words and the perhaps shock that reverberated throughout that room and even within David's heart must have felt. How the shock of being illuminated, being exposed to such a degree, maybe even awakened from the numbness of living in the place of deception, sat with him. You are that Man, and you could almost hear it, a pin drop. And as Nathan continued, we don't see it because the passage is in there. He continued to unravel the scroll of God's consequences for David's actions. What we know is that David sat there silently listening in his court. And as Nathan stopped speaking, I imagine the king the most powerful man in this country being confronted with the choice. This moment, and now he must choose what to do. And he could have done several things. Being as powerful as he was, he could have simply just sentenced Nathan to death. That very minute, I don't like what you're saying. I don't appreciate the way you're approaching me. You're done. He could have done that. Or perhaps he could have explained himself. See, Nathan, you don't understand. It was, a, it, was a, it was an afternoon. I was lonely. I was tired. I was depressed. I was discouraged. And he could have explained his situation. And I just walked out to the balcony, and, and, and this happened. And I even tried to cover it up. I mean, I tried to, to stop it from getting worse. But, but Uriah, he wouldn't, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't conform to what I was asking him to do. So I ended up having to do something that was even worse than that. But, but can you just hear my side of it? He could have explained himself. Or perhaps he could have even blamed somebody, like Bathsheba and said, listen, who, I mean, who, what, how, could you ex how could you expect me to, to behave any differently? You don't understand what she was doing. 
He could have blamed her. Or he could have even done something else. He could have completely, outrightly denied it, silenced him. Be quiet. That's enough. Leave this place. Continuing to live in the shadows, continuing to live in what he knew was not true about him. And maybe because he had the absolute power to do any one of those things, maybe because he had the ability to do those without any real consequence, it makes his response all the more astounding. Because it's in his lowest point. In this point, the great king, the slayer of Goliath, embraces his moment of truth. And he says in verse 13, after having listened silently to everything that was being said, he says that David then confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Six words. Nothing more. I have sinned against the Lord. The great king humbled in the presence of everyone. And Nathan, equipped with a final word from God, perhaps having foreseen this, God equipped him with something else. He, there will be a final note to this. His note will not be the last. He says, yes, you have. But the Lord has forgiven you. He has, another version says, he has cast this aside. He will not hold this over you. No, you won't die for this. The same judgment you rendered on one of your citizens in your kingdom will not be rendered on you by your king. He is so much more gentle and kind, merciful and forgiving, gracious and loving. You have been forgiven. It is washed. You will not die. There are consequences, but you will have another day. And oh, what a day it was. The second chapter after this incident, this moment of truth in David's life, ended up opening a new beginning, a new place in history that ended up recovering his standing. And the great king was not undone by the awful mistakes he had made. There was a new way. So he embraced this moment of truth. It's a powerful exchange. One that I think has many lessons for us to glean from. One that I, I believe we can seek to step into as we move into the moments God may present us with. Firstly, I'd like to suggest that David's behavior, King David's behavior, reminds us of a couple of things. See, wisdom reminds us that in our moments of truth, we are to acknowledge our role. We are to do what David did. We are to not do what he didn't do. He, he did not excuse himself, explain himself, deny himself, blame others. He owned his role. Can we hear this? He took responsibility for his actions and nothing more. The great king stepped into this moment and owned what he did and nothing more. Nothing more. And why would we do this? Because there's so much health that is there for us when we are willing to admit certain things. When we cannot heal the wounds we will not acknowledge. We cannot prevent the mistakes we never own up to. 
In fact, the first mistake after making a mistake is pretending we never made the mistake. Or so I have heard it said. And later in, in his life, he ends up writing this psalm, Psalm 32, that many people believe accurately described how you may have felt in these 12 months. He said in Psalm 32, verse 4 verses, he says, Oh, what the joy, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, who, whose sin is put out of sight, it's gone. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt. What joy for the clean conscience. What joy for that one who no longer hides. He says, whose, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. What joy for, the not, for no longer needing the, to pretend or deny or lie. What joy for, for living in complete honesty. Look, when I refused to confess what I had done, he says, my body wasted away. My body was actually physically affected. I had been broken within. I groaned all day long. What a burden it was. And we know psychologically exactly what he was speaking about because we know that the things we hide, the things we deny, the things we lie or pretend are not there actually become heavier and heavier as each day passes. And he says, listen, your hand he says, your day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy upon me. You would not let me go. You wanted me to step into my moment of truth. And my strength, it evaporated like water in a summer day. But oh, what strength came the minute I stepped into these moments. And I admitted, yes, I own it. I am that man. However possible, I am that man. But this is so difficult to do, isn't it? Because we would rather, we, our natural tendency is to rearrange the facts so that there is less weight on our own shoulders. And yet how powerful it is when we see somebody stepping into this moment, embracing it for what it is, and owning their role. Recently, my wife and I had the privilege of sitting on the opposite end of a table in which a former student in our youth ministry, I used to be a youth pastor for a number of years, and... <coughs> We had a student that we had long, we, we prayed for, we, we counseled, we, we spent time with, we sought to help, and they were, we saw them going in a fast track down, and, and they were just refusing to acknowledge or receive any help, and they ended up leaving our ministry, going into a new season of life, having not really received anything we, we really offered, and we were just brokenhearted about it, and it was recently that they ended up asking us to go to coffee with them, and we hadn't heard from them for several years, about three or four years. And so I remember on our way, she, this person had, I remember my wife and I, we were just talking and I asked her, is there anything that we have done that we may have need to ask for forgiveness for? I, I really don't know what we're stepping into because this person had said, I want to make amends with you. And I thought, boy, I don't, I hope I uh, didn't do anything. Um, and I remember just talking about it. I'd never been in this situation. And then is there anything that we feel she owes us for? No, there's nothing. And so, but we made our way. And we sat across the table and we were sitting there and what we were told is that this person nine months ago ended up hitting a moment where reality was no longer avoidable. Truth was no longer avoidable. They asked for help and they ended up stepping into rehab and out of rehab they stepped into AA and through the ninth steps they had gotten, through the 12 steps they had gone to the ninth step which is to make amends with others and they wanted to sit down with us and make amends with us and I cannot explain to you the power of a young adult sitting there saying I own this I did this, you tried this and I denied this and you attempted this and I took advantage of this and I am sorry for my role in it. And I couldn't help but get emotional. 
See, I'd never experienced something like this. And all of a sudden, this teen that was in my youth ministry, whom I was a teacher of, became my teacher, and I became their student because I witnessed right in front of me the power and the strength that came from embracing their moment that God had presented them with. They had learned from their mistakes. They were now repairing. They were now gleaning everything possible out of it. And I remember just sitting there, and when they had finished, I remember just wanting to applaud them. I just remember wanting to encourage them. You did it. You stepped into it. And feeling so much, I remember just in my heart, feeling so much, wanting to tell them, listen, you are not alone in that place. Because guess what? You know who also stepped with utter humility and with utter courage into their moment that God had designed for them to step into? Well, Jesus did that. And Jesus stepped into that moment, and he stepped onto that cross, and he took the payment for the very things that you and I could never pay for. And we hold absolute solidarity when we embrace those moments in our lives because we are not alone. And what we are offered is a life-giving forgiveness and spirit of grace and mercy. We no longer need to hide things. We no longer need to pretend. We no longer need to put on anything other than that what's true. How powerful that is. How significant that is. Oh, that we would learn how to step into these moments and own our role. Secondly, King David did something else that I think is pretty remarkable. He, he reminds us of the wisdom of to remain open to the Nathans God may send our way. To, to the Nathans God may send our way. And I will say, King David had an unfair advantage in this, in this incident. <coughs> Uh, he, had a, he had Nathan, a trusted confidant, a trusted friend, he, whom he respected, a man who was well-polished in his delivery, who had the perfect story to get David to the place of listening to him perfectly, surgically inserting what he needed to hear, when he needed to hear it. We may not be so fortunate. Our Nathan may not be as polished. He may be, or she may be, a little rougher in their delivery a little less precise with their surgical tool. May feel like a hammer. And we may also, in this moment, in King David's life, it was so clearly black and white. He so clearly was absolutely at fault. We may not feel so clearly black and white. It may be a little bit more gray for us. Our situations might be a little bit more complex. In fact, we may hear our Nathan approach us, and we may say, you know what? I have a Nathan message for you. Thank you for sending me this message. Can we exchange messages now? <laughs> we can do this. We'll help each other. You point out mine, I'll point out yours. I am also hearing from God, okay? <laughs> but regardless of the situation, can we hear the wisdom in being able to see past the messenger and hearing the word God may have for us? Can we hear the wisdom of being able to, even in that moment, even in the rough delivery, even in the place where we might see the brokenness, the weakness, the jagged edges, could we hear the wisdom of becoming better for learning, better for receiving? If it is truly a blind spot, perhaps we become less blind. Perhaps we become stronger for it. Perhaps we become better. And that is usually how it goes. When we practice the ability to remain open to the Nathans, God may send our way. We become better for it. And when we decide to step out of that place, we actually end up becoming bitter 
for it. Because now we become offended at the person who would dare point things out instead of learning from the one who sent them. Whether or not they know it, God may have a word for us there. I read this book recently. It was called The Upside of Down. It was written by this journalist, Megan McArdle, and she said this. She said, the secret to catching mistakes quickly is simple. I'm not so sure it's simple. But she said this, treat outside information as if it were inside information. When someone tells you you're off track, try to do this one small thing. Don't look for the reasons why they may be wrong. Listen for the reasons why they may be right. And so when somebody comes to us and we may not trust their attitude, their motivation, and we might not trust what they're coming at us with, can we hear this, the practice of silencing what may want to rise up and defend, want to rise up and explain and, and excuse? And can we just listen long enough to hear, Lord, are you using, can't, it, are you saying something here? Is there something right about this? Is there something you're trying to give me in terms of wisdom? Are you trying to educate me here? King David so accurately portrayed an openness to the Nathans God may send our way. And lastly, our final thought is that wisdom reminds us that embracing our moments of truth will point us to God's mercy and forgiveness. The, the beautiful thing about engaging life with God is that moments of truth don't become the final note. They don't become the final destination. They actually become the open door by which we step into God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. That every time there is a moment of truth presented to us, if we were to embrace it, we not only learn from it and gain wisdom from it, but we also get to experience what Nathan was able to tell King David. You are forgiven. And there is another day. There is another chapter in your life. You can get back Back up from this, which, by the way, is the very thing we're going to try to explore next week. But can you hear this? That when we embrace our moments of truth, we actually, in some way, shape, or form, set ourselves on a new path that is meant to lead to life, that is meant to be wisely lived, that is meant to be filled with his mercy and his forgiveness. And there is a new day. And every time I get to look at this, I get to look at the contrast of what life was like when I denied the truth and what life is like with God's grace and mercy. It is stark. It is completely different when we seek to live this out with him. There is a new day. There is a new chapter. His mercy and grace and forgiveness prevails. It prevails. May we embrace our moments of truth, experience that for ourselves. In a moment, we're going to have our time of giving, and the band is going to come up and share in a final song meant to remind us. It's a prayer to teach us how to be carried away in learning his way, the wisdom of learning his way, the wisdom of learning how God may want to function and work in our lives. Let me pray, and we'll step into this together. God, thank you. I thank you, God, that, that in your loving mercy, you send us moments meant to enhance and strengthen, educate and teach, meant to give us wisdom for living. I pray, Father, that you would give us the internal strength, perhaps the ability to surrender, to lower our own defense mechanisms, to trust you long enough to embrace those moments. And I thank you, God, that when we do, 
your final note is always mercy and forgiveness. I pray, Father, that you would help us live a life that we can be able to say with King David, your loving kindness and goodness has followed me all the days of my life. May that be the case for us, God. May your mercy, loving kindness, and goodness follow us all the days of our lives. May you help us live wisely. We pray for this in Jesus' name.